Imagine a world where men stepped up and answered God's call to reach their full potential. Imagine a world where men put their faith and trust in God unwaveringly and without qualification. Imagine a world where men lived out God's purpose for them in everything they do. It's Not My Credit to Take explores the awe and wonder of how God shows up in the lives of strong, principled Christian men from all walks of life. Get ready to laugh, to cry, and to be transformed. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Slover, faithful husband, loving father, loyal friend, and unapologetically Christian. Welcome to the It's Not My Credit to Take podcast. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Hey, doing great. Very good. I'm really excited about our conversation today. My guest is Michael Nolan. I was recently introduced to Michael by a mutual friend and brother in Christ, and we made an instant connection. He's a well-respected ministry and business leader and the current chief executive officer of the Bill Glass Behind the Walls Ministry. I'll have him talk more about that here in a bit. Uh, he's had a storied career of fostering responsible growth for ministries and local church organizations, serving as the president of the Operation Andrew Group, an organization that seeks to unite the body of Christ by partnering with local churches to love God and our neighbors, and as the president of the Intersection Ministries, a consulting firm he founded in uh, 2017 to come alongside churches and ministry organizations with a network of professionals offering help in strategic planning, finance and business consulting, and operational leadership. Even though we just recently met, uh, I, I couldn't help but think, Michael, of, of what Humphrey Bogart said at the end of Casablanca to Claude Rains' character. It's like, this is the start of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> um, Michael's been married to his wife, Kristen, for 22 years, and they have three daughters. Yeah. yeah. Welcome so, to It's Not My Credit to Take, Michael. Hey, thank you so much. Blessed to be here. And I, uh, the feelings are very mutual. Um, very appreciative that we uh, were connected and uh, looking forward to many great things to come. Me too. Me too. So tell us a little bit about your background. You, you earned uh, an undergraduate degree in aviation and finance management. And so what was your initial thought about how your career would progress? And then how did you end up being called to full-time ministry? Yeah. I, you know, I think actually the calling in my life was really um, before I even graduated college. Um, but um I didn't answer that call. I uh, instead went to corporate America. And um, yeah, so at Louisiana Tech University, I'd started a, a men's Bible study in married student housing. I was married in college um, and um, to Kristen. And um, and we um, we started this, this Bible study, had a lot of great young men um, that were a part of it. And I really felt the calling in my life then to, to pursue ministry. But here I was wrapping up you know, a couple of degrees um, at Louisiana Tech University going, well, surely, I mean, I, I, I'd have to go back to school and go to seminary to go into pastoral ministry because that's all I thought was available in ministry. Um, and um, I went to Little Rock, uh, uh, Arkansas, to interview for two jobs. And one of them was at um, the airport, uh, being at the fixed-based operations, working in that, in that group with Little Rock International Airport. And another was with General Motors, uh, specifically with their financial division to start. And um, I really wanted the airport job, if, if I had to be honest with you, but I ended up being offered uh, the job with General Motors um, and just took off from there, from Little Rock to Texas to Massachusetts to, um, to Detroit, Michigan, landing at the executive offices up there. And, um, but the calling of ministry in my life from God, uh, he, he never quit pursuing me, even though I was more like Jonah, you know, he called me to this, to, to ministry and I ran the other way and <laughs> God, God just kept pursuing me. And, uh, um, and my wife and I both, we knew even in Massachusetts before we made it to Detroit, that, uh, we were supposed to be serving him. Um, in a different capacity. And while I was at executive office, everything was great, but we were really serving with a local church and, and really involved teaching and, and just serving wherever they needed. And I shared the calling in my life with uh, the associate pastor, who was really more of my pastor. Um, our senior pastor was more of a preacher, went around to multiple campuses, but um, 
And then I sat down with both of them and, and they just really mentored me, pastored me, shepherded me. And, um, uh, to eventually what was a full-time vocational call to ministry as a pastor. And then that led to connecting with other ministries and trying to help them serve them in whatever capacity. So, yeah, it was, I, I never would have saw, um, brother, I never would have saw all the business background married with the pastoral background to give leadership um, to multiple ministries in the areas of what I thought was basic operations, finances, things like that. But to really, um, and God just married the two. And I found out there was even more to ministry than simply the pastoral call. There was so many other ways to serve the Lord in ministry um, from areas that I had been trained in, um, marketing, finances, operation, even aviation. Yeah, you got pilots that fly around ministry leaders uh, whenever it's needed. But uh, um, so, yeah, kind of full circle. Um, but that's how the calling started even before I graduated college. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was about the consulting firm that you started in 2017, the Intersection Ministries. It occurs to me that the leadership in most churches can benefit from operating their churches as businesses. And yet it doesn't seem like they do it that way or it there's they've been slow to the party uh, you know along those lines. Can you describe the the work you do to help enhance them um, excuse me to help enhance their overall financial viability as well as their operational effectiveness? No, that's that's a great question. I you know, I think most most churches and pastors and church leaders they cringe when you know you hear the word business. Um, mm. And I I often tell people there's a business side to every ministry, and if you run that business side really well, you get to do more of your ministry. If you don't run it well, it can shut you down. And um, um, but a couple of things. The average size church um, in America is 89 members. An 89 member church, uh, typically with their budget, can only afford one full time person, and that's the senior pastor. And the senior pastor, and this has been said by many, many more people than me, but the senior pastor goes to seminary and doesn't really get the training of, of business. And, but yet, when we look in scripture, they are the overseer of this. And that means they got to oversee everything, including finances, operations. It needs to be run well. We do serve a God who is a God of order. And I always tell people this. Um, there is a business side to every ministry. Run it well. But the B is a small case B, a very small case letter B. And the ministry is a capital M. And so the business doesn't run the ministry. It's just a side of the ministry that needs to be handled well. So put that perspective in it because everybody says, oh, we're not going to run it like a business. Um, no, we're not going to run it like a business. We're going to run it like a ministry that has a business side that needs to be done with excellence. Got it. So. I want to ask this question and call out that I, I'm being a little self-serving by asking it. Sure. Uh, but I think anyone that lis listens to this who's thinking about starting a ministry would be um, would be interested in getting your advice. Whenever I start started, it's not my credit to take. I did not view this as being a ministry at all until people started actually referring to it as that. And then I started wrapping my brain around it. What advice would you give someone that's new to ministry, just starting out, where, where would you have them place their attention right, right from the outset? It, from the perspective of just handling things and setting it up as a, as an organization, or are, are you thinking a little more deeper than that? Uh, let, let's start there and then, and then see where it goes. Well, so anyone and, you know, anyone that says, man, I really feel that, um, God's calling me to to take what I'm doing and putting it into a ministry format. I mean, there are proper things. I mean, you can serve the Lord and you don't need anybody's permission. You can just go after it. Um, with that said, 
to set up the organization so that other people can be involved, that other people could support um, not only you as a person, uh, but what uh, the ministry that God's given to you and laid on your heart, they can support that financially. You do need to have some infrastructure and some good things put in place. So, you know, I would just say once once you determine this is what I'm doing, then I would say the next step is through each specific state to do a simple filing and say, hey, we're going to start doing ministry in the state of whatever your state is. And then once you have that filing, you can start working on some simple things. If I'm going to be uh, a nonprofit religious organization to serve the Lord, then you may go through a federal filing, um, arrange some bylaws and get uh, get a small board in order to help oversee things and, and make sure it's done correctly. And really, those things are are not difficult. It's just a matter of, of knowledge and filing with the right place. And once you're set up as that entity, both in the state and on the federal level, not only can you operate within um, within their guidelines and help serve uh, your community and the nation and the world even uh, for religious purposes, but people can come alongside of you and support you both financially as well as through prayer, as well as through involvement and um, and the operation exists for both um, processing their gifts, but also give them tax deductibility. Um, and there's also that care of overseeing the ministry with a board and then you, and I'm not speaking with you in particular, but anyone who is kind of leading the ministry, you now have a network and an infrastructure to operate in that people find very credible um, there's accountability there, and those things are really good. Not not only for for the outside exposure for people to see, but also for us internally. That's a good thing. That's that's really helpful. Uh, I was taking notes as you were describing this. I know we spoke we spoke previously about this. I'm going to pick your brain uh, uh, further uh, offline. Currently, you're the chief executive officer of the Bill Glass Behind the Walls Ministry. Talk a little bit about how you got involved with that organization and what your work look, looks like on a, a daily basis, a monthly basis, an annual basis. Yeah, wow, that's that's changed so much. Uh, so really, um, I was serving, as you stated at, at the onset, uh, with a great organization in Nashville, Tennessee called the Operation Andrew Group, as well as doing consulting and leading the intersection ministries. And, um, I, you know, I got contacted by someone that um, their simple email was, is we have a few ministries that we think could use your help. And I really thought that they wanted a consultant. Um, and I reviewed all of the ministries they sent to me. And the one that I really felt a heart for and my wife felt a heart for was Bill Glass Behind the Walls. And so um, I reached back out to him and told him I'd be interested to know more about this ministry. And that really just God led that together um, to me coming out to Dallas, Texas, meeting with a great group of people that were going through the interview process and uh, and if I come to find out, they didn't want a consultant. They they wanted a, a CEO. And uh, um, but we knew my wife and I knew from the very beginning this was a ministry we wanted to be connected with. It didn't matter what what way. Um, as a volunteer teammate, um, um, as a consultant, it didn't matter. We knew that we needed to be connected to the ministry. And eventually that led, um, God led it together. And, and uh, uh, this was, was definitely his, his calling in our life at this time. And I joined the ministry March 16th, 2020, right whenever COVID was shutting the world down. <laughs> right. um, but it was great. I mean, we really, as a team, um, and these are teammates in the in the field. They're the backbone of this ministry. They give of their time and of their talent and of their treasure um, to see this ministry go on. They built it. Um, it was a God-given call to our founder, Bill Glass, and and other people um, accepted that same call and just have given their life to build this ministry. And so many of us, along with the team, got together and said, 
what is our mission? What are we trying to accomplish? And are we doing it well? It COVID and that shutdown gave us a time to really focus internally on our foundation, make sure we were all rowing in the same direction. And then we started building on that. And now, um, uh, you know, the doors are opening back up. It, it took a while. It was slow. But now they're busting open and we're getting calls all the time. When can y'all be here? And so now we just want to grow um, the right way. We have a lot of opportunities, but we just don't want to get out uh, out in front of God. We want to make sure he's going before us and we don't we don't outstep him. And so um, the day to day now is getting it's getting crazy great. I mean, it's getting um, we are uh, doing evangelism training. We are taking those that working with local churches under the authority of each local pastor, just furthering what they've already done in evangelism training. But we go in on a Friday night, um, train the same gospel that they've been training. And then the very next day, we take everyone we train along with some, we call them platform guests. They could be NFL players, NBA players, NASCAR drivers, jugglers, musicians, whatever. And we normally go to a prison, jail, or juvenile yard and put on a high-impact show to draw the inmates out, um, entertain them, get them laughing, get them to drop their walls. And then all those people we train, those valuable teammates, then get the opportunity to share with them the love of Jesus and gets to share with them the gospel. And no pressure, but just gives the good news and lets the good news do the work that the good news does. And, um, and so we are set Ed, to, to do almost 60 events this year, which is more than we've had the blessing in this ministry to do over the last 20 years. So um, it's, 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 um, it's getting, again, crazy good, crazy great. It's, um, it's good to come alongside and work with so many churches, too, that um, God's plan was the local church. And we're not trying to replace it. We're trying to strengthen it. So when people go with us and get to share the gospel over and over and over, um, we hope and pray that they go back to their churches and their communities and do the same um, and serve their local church in a greater way. That's wonderful. It has me thinking about a number of different things. The the first is, I can only imagine there's a segment of the general population and maybe even a segment of prison inmates that hold the belief or philosophy that prison inmates, they committed a crime. They've, they're paying for that crime. Why do they deserve exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, how, how would you respond to something like that? Oh, man. <laughs> well, I would say first, um, just a, um, a straight answer would be that everyone um, deserves to hear uh, that Jesus loves them and that God loves them so much that he sent his only son to die for them. And uh, I mean, here, here's the bottom line. There's, it's twofold. Um, I'm going to answer your question indirectly. 95% statistically, 95% of Christians never share their faith with anyone. Really? Out of the five percent, yeah, out of the five percent that do share the gospel, only two percent do it on a regular basis. So, run the stats at your church. If you think I just made that up, if you got a hundred member church, two people are sharing the gospel on a regular basis. Um, Ninety-five out of a hundred just don't share the gospel with anyone. Um, so, our ministry and our mission—that the calling that God gave to Bill Glass was to come alongside churches and help them further teach people how to share the gospel, then take them to share the gospel and then share the gospel. Um, when you do that, we are increasing the people, um, the believers, we're increasing their confidence and their boldness to go and share. And if you can go in face to face and you, we don't ask them what crimes they've committed, but you know that the different crimes of what someone may be in there for. 
and you can say the gospel is first. It's more important for everyone to hear the gospel, including someone that I might have had this preconceived notion about. I'm going to go share it with them. Can't I share this with a family member that I don't want to spend their eternity in, in hell? Can't I share this with a coworker or a neighbor? It's just sharing the news, uh, the good news. Their response is up to them. But the other thing that I would tell you is that Jesus himself said in a series of comments about, you know, if you've done this, you know, to the poor, you've done this to me. If you visited me in prison and he says, what you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. And so to answer your question about that is, um, I think society in a lot of ways, and I was one of them, just what you said, you did the crime, you go do the time. Let's lock the door, let's throw away the key. Um, but that mentality is not seeing with the eyes that God wants us to see with. Every single one of those people that are incarcerated behind the walls, he loves them too. And he sent his son to die on the cross. Um, a good friend of mine says it this way. Um, you are not going to meet someone today that God doesn't love. And you're not going to look in the eyes of a man or a woman in prison today that Jesus didn't die for. And so you just go and share the gospel. That's our job. Um, I'll tell you one other thing that that's really, it was staggering to Bill, and it's another reason to answer your question, why, why go in and share the gospel? It, it, it's a, we end up being the ones that get a bigger blessing, um, in my opinion, than the ones we go in to serve. And, uh, but statistically, um, and it's different in every state, but nationally it's somewhere between 70 and 80% of all of those incarcerated either grew up in a fatherless or absentee father home. That's men and women. And they've never really seen a father's love and a father's blessing. And when you go in and you, you share with them the father's love, not their, not their earthly father, but their heavenly father, um, it's something that many will tell us. They tell us, I've never heard of that kind of love. I've never, mm -hmm. I've never experience that kind of love. It's hard for me to believe it because I've never seen it. And so that was something that struck Bill um, Glass early on when he went into prisons because he lost his father at a young age and he knew just how important it was to receive that type of blessing. So um, uh, br brother, I probably answered your question in three different ways, but uh, um, there's so many reasons why um, but it, it, I want to reiterate, uh, people that go in and serve with us will walk out and say, man, I thought I was going in there to share the gospel. And I did that, but I walked away with a bigger blessing than I thought, um, I would even be able to give. So that was a terrific answer. I have three follow-up questions. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. The, the first is related to the behind the walls ministry, actually going in and, and working with the inmates from your experience, what's been for you the most powerful moment that you've personally experienced and, or maybe the strangest moment that you've experienced working with these inmates? Yeah, man, narrowing down to one is probably the most difficult. Um, but I will tell you this, I, I, there's nothing greater than leading someone to the Lord. And uh, I've been blessed to be able to do that. Um, and um, and when I say lead them to the Lord, I just gave the gospel and, and they responded. Um, and and we're, we have tracks that lay it out that you just go through and, and we're able to read scripture. Um, we say it with them. And so they get to hear it, read it and say it. And, um, and the gospel does its work. It's the power of God. It's not anything we do. It's not our testimony. It's not how we deliver it. It's 
reading through the gospel and asking a couple of questions and, and, um, and that's our job. So to see, um, the Holy Spirit work um, is, is man. There, there, there's nothing better. And watching someone um, break down and surrender their life, repent of their sins, and and give their life, um, you know, to God and start a relationship with Jesus. There's nothing better. Um, but I will answer your question this way. I would say um, probably the most powerful moment. Um, outside of sharing the gospel and seeing someone respond is when we take people in, we call them rookies. Everything's a football term in Bill Glass behind the walls because Bill Glass was an NFL player, um, four-time All-Pro with the Cleveland Browns on the 64 championship team. He was a big, big man in many ways. That's right. Go Browns. And, uh, Go Browns. I'm an I'm a unapologetic Browns fan and uh, sorry to interrupt you, Michael, but for any, anyone who ends up listening to this, my, my adult life has been one extended major depressive episode (laughs) 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 and you don't need, you know, what's funny about this, Michael, you don't even need to follow professional football to know that fact. It's just been, I mean, if I didn't have Jesus in my life, I don't know where I'd (laughs) be. Well, I tell people, when I, we, we have rookies, so people that have never went in with us. And we, we train them on a Friday night, right? So they show up, and and some of them are really young. We Man, we love it when young people come and serve with us. And, uh, and I'm like, how many of you have, you know, heard of Bill Glass? And well, I'll start talking to him about him. And I said, how many of you knew the Cleveland Browns actually won a championship? And everybody's like, I, nobody <laughs> ever knew. I'm like, well, they did in 1964. <laughs> Uh, um, but those rookies, um, that the, the, the close second to leading someone to the Lord is when you get a rookie that they have all the excuses in the world as to why they never share the gospel, why they are in that 95% that never share their faith. They're like, what if they ask me questions? Um, what if they say no? Um, how do I start the conversation? We train them on all of that. And we set the table the next day so that inmates are saying, they're raising their hand. Will you come and talk to me? So these these people that have never shared their faith are easily into a conversation about the gospel. So I had an experience. It was down in Florida. And this young couple, um, I was able to spend a little time with them. And, and they observed and worked with a, a seasoned veteran in the morning. And then they were on their own in the afternoon. And so I talked to them at lunchtime and I said, are y'all ready to go? And they're like, we're ready. And, um, and they just kind of shared with me their life and, and their faith and why it was important that they were actually sharing the gospel with others now. And they wanted to do this. And so in the afternoon, when all the inmates were being called out of the yard, I saw this couple from across the yard. They was a good ways and they were running with the biggest grin on their face, and they had led two men to the Lord. And uh, um, just seeing the power of the gospel um, through um, the Holy Spirit work, and they were they were just, I mean, they were on fire. They were ready to go back and share it. They're like, we can do this. So to me, I, I can't underscore um, what that did in that moment just to see a couple of people who are not sharing their faith, share their faith and watch God do all the work. Um, and they're like, it's it, the light bulb come on. And man, they were blessed to just be used by God in any small way. So that was, that was huge. That's awesome. It seems transformative all yeah. the way around. Yeah. Going to the stat that you referenced earlier, which I find really alarming, that 95% of Christians don't share their faith. Where do you think? Where do you think that comes from? Why do you think that is? Is it a byproduct of culture separation of church and state? This, I don't know. I, I don't know what you're seeing in society and culture, but it's distinctly anti-God. I, I, I don't. I don't know if there's a single answer to that question, but how are you thinking about? a statistic like that where 95% of Christians 
either don't or don't share their faith for any any number of reasons. Yeah, and boy, I think you're right. I think there's so many there's so many different answers to that. Um, one's a fear. Um, you know, if, if I talk to them and I, I share this with them, will 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 that make it awkward in the future? Will they be my friend? Um, 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 you know what? I'm just going to let them alone as long as they don't bother me. I won't bother them. I think there's also a fear of I don't really know the Bible that well. And so what if they start asking me questions um, and I don't know how to answer it? Um, I think there's another fear that, man, I'm, I know I'm not perfect. I make mistakes every day. I'm talking about Michael. I make mistakes every day. Am I being a hypocrite to um, preach the gospel to him? And we, we, I think we let the enemy, um, you know, get into uh, to our thinking too much and um, create some of that really stinking thinking that, you know, I, our job is to, to share the gospel. It's not, it's not, it's not my gospel. Um, as far as my life is why you should change. It's because of his life and what he did, uh, on the cross. And, um, and I, I think we just get sidetracked with way too many things and start thinking about it. And then we don't want things to be awkward with family, with coworkers. You got to work with them every day. You got to see family um, uh, sometimes once, twice, 10 times a year, ever how many. And you just don't want things to be awkward. Um, but I think that's one of the great things that God gave Bill many years ago. Um, because Bill Glass himself, uh, he met Jesus at age 16. And he started carrying young men to his pastor saying they need to hear about Jesus. And wow. after he took, after he took so many people there, finally his pastor said, Bill, thanks for bringing them. But you know, you can do this yourself. And, and Bill, even at, he was probably 17, 18 at the time. He said, man, I can't do this. I'm not a pastor. I haven't been trained in seminary. What do I say? How do I, how do I systematically go about it? You know I mean? There's a lot of great resources out there, but people, you have to practice. And I, I don't mean to simplify it down to um, something like practice makes perfect, but if you don't really develop the gospel and how you're going to say it according to Scripture and like the systematic order, and there's a lot of orders, Romans Road, there's spiritual laws there's all and we have a track that's based on that but people learn it in three categories you know and god loves you everybody's got a problem it's called sin but god's got the solution and there's verses with each one of those statements and when someone practices it over and over and over eventually they can lay that track to the side and they can enter into a conversation and not only say those statements, but the verses that are with them. And then they're just, they're, they're an evangelist. They're a witnessing um, uh, evangelist at that point. And so I think a lot of people are just, they're not practiced. They're not comfortable. So instead of getting into it without having the end, the completion, the knowing how to take it from step one to step three, I think people just shy away from it. Now, I mean, that's about the the most simplistic, uh, complex answer I think I can give you. <laughs> Speaking from experience, I am exactly what you described. Not mm. strong with scripture and not knowing how to talk about it up until the, the recent past. And when I say recent past, I'm literally talking about the last three months. Yeah. Like really, really, really being intentional with digging into the word. The other part of that was this idea that Christians must be perfect. And when we're found out to be imperfect, then we're going to be labeled a hypocrite. And one of the things that I reconciled years ago, which was independent of the, the Lord, which is we're all hypocrites. Yes. The question isn't whether or not we're hypocrites. The qu question really is, what are we hypocritical about? Yeah. Well, I, so, go ahead. I love this saying, and 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 man, I hope I hope you use it as many times as you want to. The the guy told the the Christian as he was getting ready to walk in church, man, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. And he said, "Yep, we got room for one more. Come on in." Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, it's just 
it's it's true we're not perfect we just we're striving to be like Jesus which was perfection um and we come up short every day but um it's in the strive and um so yeah you're right and and what are we hypocritical about today may be different than what we're hypocritical about tomorrow um but man that that continually points to the fact that we, we need the Lord and his instruction manual, but we also need each other um, to lift each other up in love. And you said something earlier, too, that that I didn't even hit on. It's got its own uh, branches of variables. But today, I mean, when I grew up, it was, well, just let everybody be themselves. I don't want to cause any wrinkles. But today you bring it up and it's um, um, our world's already so divisive. And you bring it up today and you can be looked at. I mean, we're really not facing the type of persecution that we know that exists in the world in the states. Um, but there's some there's at least some beginning, um, you know, um, division that is pointing towards um, it, it getting more and more um, controversial. But I'll tell you this. And I, I just Bill Glass said it when he was speaking at a Billy Graham crusade. Um, back in 1965, on the very first nationally televised Billy Graham crusade, he quoted a scripture, and it's in our track, um, and it's John 14:6, and and I use this all the time now. Um, Jesus said, "I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." And Bill Glass said this. When I read that statement that Jesus said that, he's either the biggest liar this universe has ever seen, or he is who he says he is, and he's the only way to be connected to God the Father for all of eternity. And our job is, again, to go deliver the message of the gospel. And um, the, the people that we deliver it to, if they're foul, if they're negative, it's, if it's controversial, then I would rather have them be upset at me. And Jesus said, man, the world hates me and they're going to hate you for my sake. If you go out and preach it, be ready for it. And, and actually take joy in it because you're doing what he called you to do. And that's a hard thing for us to get over, but it's something that we must. And I think that's why your original question um, is why the number's so high. I think that we we just don't understand the importance of all eternity of damnation for the lost. Um, it just doesn't, for some reason, it just doesn't penetrate us on a nonstop, ongoing, keep me awake at night type of basis. And if it did, I think we would all be better at this, including me. Yeah, it, at least on one level, speaks just to the distractive nature of contemporary society. I, I won't rail on anything in particular, but I do I do want to bring up something that I learned just within the last week. This was striking, and I apologize to the listeners. I don't remember this, uh, this researcher's name. He, he was a demographer, and he discovered that currently— as of April of 2023, there are 7 million men in the United States that are, are unemployed and they're not actively seeking employment, mm -hmm. which is curious because those folks aren't included in the unemployment numbers because they're not actively seeking employment. And so I want to focus on the men piece. Obviously, that number is higher when you account for women not actively seeking work and currently unemployed. Now, 10% of that number, Michael, are in, in school, in probably intending on going into the workforce. But 90% of that number are literally having their lives subsidized by someone else. Mm. It, it, the, the short answer to that, it's like, well, who is, is you and I? So many of those, get, uh, those guys get unemployment benefits, and they spend in upwards of 2,000 hours a year on screens. Now, for those who don't know how many you know, full-time hours in a year, it's roughly 2,000, 50 weeks a year times 40 hours a week. So this has been a full-time job for that, for those folks. 
why do you think in contemporary culture th this is just kind of acceptable where you've got guys that and at, at the risk of sounding judgmental that may slant towards being listless or aimless versus actually standing up and answering God's call of their potential. What do you think some of the answers to that are? Mm, mm. Well, that's, uh, well, that's deep. That's uh, I, out of those 6.3 million that are remaining after that, that 90%, 6.3 million, um, were all of those uh, free or were some of those make up the 2.3 million incarcerated? Those are, those are, uh, those don't count anyone in prison. Okay. So 6.3 million, I, you know, right. whew, that's a, that's a, that's really a great question. Tough. I mean, there's so many, again, another multi-variable type of answer, you know, um, I think it's, um, I want to go back to, I'm going to go back to Genesis. Um, I'm going to go back to creation. Um, I'm going to go back to, um, I just had the privilege to, uh, perform, uh, a wedding for, uh, one of my three daughters, uh, this last Sunday. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And I, I, uh, um, I, when I was talking to them about their wedding, I used this verse and I said, you know, when the apostle Paul and Jesus, um, refer to marriage and refer to um, husband and wives in marriage, they never use the adulterous or polygamous um, uh, uh, leaders in the Bible. They don't refer to Abraham, Moses, uh, um, David. They don't refer to those marriages. They go all the way back to the very beginning, the very first marriage before sin entered the world, the pre-fall Adam and Eve. And, and, the reason I'm bringing this up is because God created man and said he shouldn't be alone, created woman, Eve. They were two equally created beings with two specific unique roles. Eve, tempted, wanted to be something that she was not created to be. She wanted a role that God did not intend for her to have. And there was Adam right beside her who didn't step up and perform the role, one of the roles in which he was created, and that was the leader. And if he would have provided leadership in that moment, which is one of the things he was created to be um, in that relationship, again, both equal persons with two unique roles, if he would have stepped up and done it, it would have been a different outcome. Um, and I believe the crux of my answer to you is that I believe that men are not stepping up to be the leaders that God called them to be in the marriage and the family and the church and the community. And I believe that women who are very capable to do so many great things, even better, but sometimes perform roles that they were not created to be. And I think there's been an ongoing clash there. And it has, I think, sometimes men, instead of stepping up, because leadership is hard, stepping up to do what they're called is difficult. And um, they become a punchline instead of the strong leaders. When they did take leadership, some um, abuse it and therefore get categorized as, well, then all men must do this. And so... I don't know if I'm giving you really a, a you know, a, a good exact answer to you, because I, I think, like you said, it's multifaceted. But that's one of the things I see that um, that, you know, men um, allow other people to do what their roles are um, instead of stepping up and doing them. And they're difficult at times. But I'll go back to the incarcerated with 70 to 80 percent that grew up in a fatherless or absentee father home, um, them being incarcerated repeats that cycle. So if, if we can give them the good news and they start a relationship with Jesus and then they get discipled behind the walls by local churches, and then when they get out, because out of the 2.3 million currently incarcerated, 
85% will be out in less than three years. Mm-hmm. If they can have a relationship with the Lord, be discipled to know what a father and a husband is supposed to be and get out and not just assimilate just back to society so they can get a job. But if they can assimilate back to local church, if they can assimilate back to their family and be the leaders and the, again, the husbands and the fathers, those unique roles that God called them to be, then man, that can affect and change a community, a society, a nation, and a world. And so um, um, we didn't get here quickly, and we won't get out quickly, but we must we must make the effort. I want to explore this a little bit further before we close our conversation today, because you, you referenced the various roles and the difficulty men have and women women do too i i I don't want to i don't want to minimize that but contextually it's not my credit to take is all about men Mm -hmm. at least today there's you reference the difficulty in them stepping up to answer god's call as leaders as husbands as fathers as church members Mm -hmm. just in general in society given the current climate the current culture what incentive do they have to change and actually step up and answer the call of their potential? Well, I think, I think their, their family, um, their, their nation, the next generation, um, you know, those are their incentives. Um, you know, I've always been taught, you know, leave it better than you found it. And, uh, Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, when, when I look at our next generation um, and I often have I've heard something similar to this, but I often say it, what we as parents tolerate, our kids will adopt. So when mm-hmm. we just let something slip by and don't step up and lead, all of a sudden it becomes a part, an accepted part of the next generation's culture. Um, so I was blessed um, that my grandparents and great grandparents uh, set away from me. They did right and they did wrong. And, and, uh, but they passed down uh, a nation values and morals that were biblically based, but they made it very clear. This is, this is what you need to go read and determine and make it your own. You can't have ours, but, but they pointed me in the right direction and gave me the information to make choices. So I just, I think we're, um, I think we're responsible for that next generation. I'll tell you one thing, and I, I man, I went on so many rabbit trails. You, you're so kind. Um, I was speaking to a group of millennials, and and really, my message was a positive, encouraging one, letting them know that just what the world says they are is not what they are. Um, just because the world tries to categorize them in certain um, ways, um, uh, they're not who the world says they are. They're, they're who, um, they are in Christ and what they each individually do. Anyway, I I gave several examples of millennials and I had a young lady come up to me afterwards and she was like, man, I loved it. But she said, I, I just do want to remind you, you know, and that your generation raised us. And I said, that was so good. It was so good. It's it's such an ouch. You know, I was like, you're so right. I mean, we tolerated it and now you've adopted it. Um, It's your life now. So, um, so I think we have a lot at stake. Um, I don't want my kids and my grandkids uh, growing up without understanding what the right thing to do is. And even if it comes at a heavy price, um, what's the, the quote, I don't even know who said it. There's never a wrong time to do the right thing. And I think that's our incentive. That's a wonderful answer. In, in thinking about every succeeding generation of young people, the preceding generation ends up vilifying them about something and claiming that they're entitled without the recognition and awareness of who did the entitling in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's an interesting irony. So, Michael, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed the conversation. I took a lot of notes. I'm going to be following up with you separately to discuss 
uh, formally setting up a 501c3 and getting some advice from you uh, on that. But b- before we wrap, would you mind closing us out in prayer? Oh, I would love to. And thank you for for really having me on. It was a blessing to uh, to be with you again. And I do look forward to uh, um, to serving the Lord with you and just what, what, what things happen um, and what's expected to come. So um, let's pray together. Lord, uh, thank you for our time, and um, um, God, I just hope you'll bless uh, you know our words and our fellowship, and uh, and for all of those that uh, um, will listen and and are just being blessed by uh, my dear brother Ed's uh, ministry to you, Lord, um, and uh, um, I love it. Um, all the things that we get to do, uh, um, we, we truly can't take the credit because it's all you. It's all for your glory, for your honor. And anytime we try to take it, then we know that our reward has already been passed out here on earth. Um, but God, may we, um, may we lay our treasures up in heaven and may that be where our heart is. Um, God, we do pray for the lost. Um, we do pray for our nation. Uh, God, we repent of our failures and, and we ask for forgiveness for our sins, both individually and as a nation. Um, God, we just want to uh, continually turn back to you. And the only way we know how to do that is to just serve you and um, serve you, love you, share the gospel. And um, we know you're in control, even when our eyes uh, would want to deceive us. And so um uh, we just we praise you for all the great things, and we pray for all the things that um, um, we're able to accomplish. And again, um, we'll give you the glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Continued blessings, Michael, in the work you're doing with the Bill Glass Behind the Walls ministry. And just thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you too, friend. God bless. You can contact the show at it's not my credit to take.com. We'd love to hear from you. God bless.